This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. This week, we'll be reading Dreadful Dreamer and To Please the Master by Margaret St. Clair and playing tape music from 1958 when the latter was published. Tape music is early electroacoustic music where magnetic tape recording techniques are used to create musical compositions. Musicians would record sounds, then re-record the sounds, manipulating features like playback speed. They would then splice together multiple tapes to create a collage of sounds. In the background, we are listening to Sky Horse and Death by Toru Takmitsu. Now we'll be listening to Edgar Varese's composition, Poem Electronique. Thank <laughs> you. 
I'll be reading Dreadful Dreamer by Margaret St. Clair, which was first published in Super Science Stories, July of 1949. The Mars Cat would give you anything you desired, and it took nothing but friendship in return. Nothing except one tiny thing you didn't want, and without which you couldn't live. Here, kitty, Kestrel called into the blue Martian dusk. He put the saucer with the food down on the sand. I didn't know you had a pet, Foner said languidly from within the tent. He was still young enough to find languor an amusing attitude. It adopted me. I haven't had a good look at it yet, but I think it's what Marcia would call a dwarf desert lynx. Company for you, I suppose, Foner said. There was a pause. Listen, Kess, about your find. Yes. Frankly, I can't understand why you called me here. Micah, yes. But Mars already produces more Micah than it can use. Anyhow, the commission didn't send... You here to look for Micah. I thought you had something valuable. You saw the indications, Kestrel said sharply. I saw the indications, yes. Do you think they add up to beryllium or? The most you could hope for would be a trace. Kestrel rubbed his forehead. I was sure. Listen, Foner. Do you have to be back at Marsport tonight? Not absolutely, no. Then stay with me. I want to check the diggings again with you by daylight. I can't understand this. It looked like high-grade stuff. As a favor to an old pal, Foner replied lightly. Okay. Good. Kestrel's face relaxed. I'm not the cook Marcia is, he went on, but I can promise you something fairly edible. I found a can of pinta nuts this morning, and I'll cook a mess of my famous dessert burgoo. He began rummaging about in the boxes and tins. Let me help, Foner said, getting lazily to his feet. Well, there's not much, but you might open the pinta nuts. They're in that big chest. Foner hunted in the chest. Kestrel pointed to. The can's not here, he said after a moment. Huh. Sure it is. I saw it this morning myself. Look, what's that? Kestrel pointed to a can. Leech nuts, Foner replied. Kestrel blinked. So it is. He said slowly. I must be seeing things. I'd have sworn that label read Pinta Nuts. And there's no Yudrella in the chest either. What's the matter with me? Foner made no direct answer. His mouth was puckered up. They dined on the Burgoo a rather insipid dish without its two main ingredients. 
and sat smoking in silence. It means a lot to you to find high-grade ore, doesn't it? Foner asked. Yes, it does, Kestrel answered soberly. My future and Marsha's, all our plans, just about everything. Um, from outside the tent, there came a faint scratching of claws and then a delicate whine. It was not quite a meow. That's the kitty, Kestrel said. He shows up about this time every night for chow. Foner had taken the pipe from his mouth and was listening intently. That's no dwarf desert lynx, he said. Isn't it? Well, I said the identification was only tentative. When did it adopt you? Just about the time you found the beryllium ore? Why, yes, the day before. How'd you know? You better stop feeding it. It's a dangerous animal. Kestrel raised his eyebrows. Dangerous, he said. How? It's not over a foot long. Has it got poisonous fangs? Foner permitted himself a smile. It's not dangerous in that way. Don't you really know what you've got, Kess? It's a padadion. Kestrel's face remained blank. They call them Lyle's babies sometimes, Foner went on. Does that ring any bells? I'm afraid not. I'm new to this part of Mars. I see. Of course, they have only a local distribution. No, seriously, Kess. You've got to stop feeding it. I don't understand. You said it's not poisonous, and it seems as friendly as it can be. That's where the trouble comes in, Foner took a deep breath. The patadion, he said, his languor giving place to an unconscious pedantry, is like the members of primitive races on Earth. Stephenson, who did some fine work with Eskimos, says you must never put a question in the form, so-and-so killed a lot of bears, didn't he? to an Eskimo, because he's sure to answer, yes, he did, he killed an awful lot, regardless of how many bears so-and-so really did kill. The primitive isn't lying. He's being friendly and courteous. He's telling you what he thinks you want to hear. A patadion is like that, only he makes you see what he thinks you want to see. Kestrel rubbed his forehead once more. He looked confused. You mean that animal had something to do with my finding the beryllium ore? With your thinking, you found the beryllium ore, Foner corrected. Yes. Somehow, the patadion projects. I don't think they know how, exactly. Patadions haven't been studied much. Somehow, it projects a very vivid image of what the person it's trying to please would like to see. Hence, the day after the patadion adopts you, you find a rich vein of brilliant ore. 
That's why you were sure you'd seen a can of pinted nuts in the chest. You knew I was coming. You wanted me to stay for supper. You wanted to be able to make your special burgoo. The padadine did the rest. There was a silence. How's it dangerous, though? Kestrel asked at last. I don't see that. I've gotten rather fond of the thing. Phoner, since Marsh has been away. Well, it's made you waste two weeks hunting for a non-existent vein of beryllium ore, Phoner pointed out. Can't you think of a situation in which believing that what you wanted to be true was true would be dangerous? I can. Besides, people get addicted to them. That's how the animal got its popular name, Lyle's baby. Lyle lost his only child under terribly tragic circumstances. He was nearly crazy with grief. They found him two or three years later, almost starving, living in a cave with a patadion. When they tried to take it away from him and bring him back to normal, he killed himself. He said it was his baby. Brr, Kestrel said. Yes, quite. Of course, the patadion doesn't mean any harm. I doubt it has a single malicious thought in what passes for its head. It's only trying to integrate itself. They're fond of human beings in the same way that dogs are. You say you've never really seen yours. That's because it's not sure yet that you're attached to it. When they know they're welcome, they're not a bit shy. When did you say Marcia was coming back? Tomorrow night, flying her own wing. She mentioned something about bringing Elise with her for a day or two, if you could spare her. Anyhow, she can't come too soon for me. You and Marcia, me and Elise, Foner said, speaking for the moment perfectly soberly. Then, with a return to his usual manner. Pitiful, isn't it? The way these women get their hooks into one. Well, when Marcia does come, my advice would be to get away from here as soon as you can. As I say, the patadion can be dangerous. Okay. The diggings inspected in the hard light of the of Martian day proved as deficient in beryllium ore as Foner had insisted they were. Foner clapped Kestrel twice on the shoulder, murmured, Hard luck, hard luck, several times, and then stared back to Marsport. He warned Kestrel against the patadion once more before he left. Foner, though he was not then aware of it, was to return to the camp that evening with the ambulance from Marsport Foundation Hospital when it flew to pick the bodies up. The story, as nearly as it could be gathered from Kestrel, who was almost incoherent from the pain of his burns, went like this. Marcia had come back to the camp just at dusk, an hour or so before Kestrel had been expecting her. He was overjoyed to see her, though he scolded her severely for having made 
the dangerous landing in the bad light. She might have wrecked the wing, he said. He had been just on the point of going out to fix a beacon for her. He noticed that she seemed silent and remote, but he put it down to fatigue. He knew she had been working very hard. Once or twice, the automatic signaler in the corner of the tent buzzed, but Kestrel was too absorbed in Marcia to attend to it especially. Kestrel and his wife were still talking quietly in the soft glow of the tent lamps when there was an intense white-hot glare of light from the desert outside. Marcia vanished incontently. The explosion had frightened the Patadion, and seconds later, the tremendous impact of the crashing wing shook the ground. Kestrel realized then what had happened. He ran out into the desert, but it was too late. The sand for yards around the wing was a hell of impassable flame. There were screams from the cabin. Kestrel tried twice to get in to the women and was badly burned. He sent an emergency call into the Mars port for help and then collapsed. There was not much left of the wing when the ambulance got there. The attendants whistled at the sight of Kestrel's burns and proceeded to shoot him full of narcotics. But Foner, the self-possessed, worldly, sardonic Foner, they had to put in handcuffs, and even then it was difficult to handle him. The ambulance pilot thoroughly regretted that they had let Foner come with them. He was still screaming, I told you it was dangerous! when the wing took off. From its hole near the cook tent, the Patadion watched the departure with bright, unintelligent eyes. Then it went back to cleaning itself. Kestrel was hospitalized for 18 days. When he was released, he took the first ship back to Terra and thus passed out of this history. But Foner's weeks grew into months and then another one, and still he screamed and fought against the opiates, which would have given him peace for an hour or two. It was nearly three months after the crash that they let him out. He had lost much weight, and his hands persisted in trembling. He hired a wing and flew to the place where Marcia and Elise had had their wreck. It was late afternoon when he got there, and he waited patiently inside the wing until twilight came. Then he got out and walked towards the spot where he thought the Patadion was. He had bought food and a dish to hold it before he left the capital. Here, kitty, kitty, he called into the rich blue dusk. The Patadion heard him. For a space, it lay with its nose between its paws and listened. The process that was going on in its tiny mind could hardly be called thought. All the same, it was gauging, and very accurately, too, the misery and the need and hate which had driven Foner into the desert to look for it. Here, kitty, kitty, Foner called again. 
he drew back into the shadow of the wing, his gun in his hand. There was silence. The sky had grown quite dark, and the thin night wind of Mars was springing up. The man in the lee of the wing shifted his weight to the other foot and then leaned forward, peering intently. Was something drifting towards him over the surface of the sand? The padded iron waited. It's Elise, Boner said oddly. Elise, Elise. The moments passed, and then, above the sighting of the wind, there was a dull sound which meant that the gun had fallen from his hand. The padded iron waited a little longer, waited until it was absolutely, perfectly sure. Then, briskly and self-confidently, it came trotting across the sand to him. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was Dreadful Dreamer by Margaret St. Clair, which was first published in Super Science Stories, July of 1949. In the background, you heard John Cage's Fontana mix for tape. Now we're listening to Luke Ferrari's Etude au Son Tendu. So I thought I would tell you a little about Margaret St. Clair and her experience in the science fiction scene. She published 91 science fiction stories between 1946 and 1960, 70 under her own name and 21 under a pen name, Idris Seabright. Uh, the latter got quite a following even from her for- first short story. Uh, her first short story under the name Seabright was chosen for Short Story Magazine as one of the distinguished short stories of the year. Uh, St. Clair was born in Hutchinson, Kansas, and moved to California to get her M.A. from UC Berkeley in 1933. Her mystery debut was published in 1945, and she published her first science fiction story in 1946. She spoke positively about the editor she worked with, saying that the only drawback of writing in science fiction was there weren't enough magazines. The next song we'll be listening to um, is Concrete PH for two-track and at least four loudspeakers by Giannis Giannis Zanakis.
talk a little bit about Margaret St. Clair's uh, experience in the science fiction genre. She said that the science fiction editors in general were a darned nice bunch. And to quote... L. Jerome Stanton is another friendly editor. One of the most amusing letters I have ever had. It began, Ooh, what a bad girl you are, Miss St. Clair. Cozy and a poor, moss-grown old editor with such a story. Came from him. Unfortunately, after that initial burst, he became lamentably businesslike and devoted the rest of his two pages to advise me how to plug up the holes in the story I'd sent him. It was good advice, too. She also praised astounding editor John W. Campbell, Jr., noting his hospitality for newcomers, and that both Campbell and Stanton were broad-minded to the extreme with a minimum of taboos. When she first published as Idris Seabright, she got very positive feedback. In 1950, in... She was compared to the best writers of the period, one of which was herself. Um, the, to quote, One of the most pleasant and certainly most stimulating aspects of current science fiction and fantasy is the growing importance of women in these twin forms. The best of them from such old hands as C.L. Moore and Margaret St. Clair to such recent discoveries as Judith Merrill, Betsy Curtis, and Wilmar Shearis bring to the field a welcome warmth and sensitivity and immediacy of impact. Women write especially seem to realize that every type of science fiction must essentially deal with people.
I'll be reading To Please the Master by Margaret St. Clair, which was first published in Space Travel, July 1958. Nick was a conscientious robot, anxious to serve well. But something was wrong inside him, and try as he would, he didn't seem able to please the master by Margaret St. Clair. This is how the great robot wars of the late 20th century began. You sure he was born July 3rd, 1960? The old robot asked. Yes, that's what the mistress said. She said, at three o'clock in the morning, if you want to know, his mother told me it was just like Milt to pick such an ungodly hour to be born in. I don't know what the mistress meant by the word ungodly, though. Never mind about that, said the old robot. Be quiet, and I will set up a horoscope wheel for your master. That should help us understand him better. The old robot screwed a pencil into one of its fingers, drew two or three books towards it, and began to scratch symbols on a bit of paper. Nick watched him. Ever since Nick had heard Milton Kamas, his master, say he was going to trade him in for a new model house robot, Nick had been anxious. Not as anxious as a human being, hearing of his near destruction would have been. The urge to survive is never as acute in a robot, even in such an advanced and sensitive robot as Nick, as it is in organic life. But anxious. Nick didn't want to be melted up for scrap. He didn't even want to have his memory banks erased and be sold to another master. So he had gone to the old robot for help. Robots live, lived in a world where biological bases render it forever incomprehensible to them. Their perceptions are crude, their range of reactions limited. The biological effects that govern organic behavior, love, aggression, and the survival-enforced need to have actions correspond to reality have no analog in them. On top of that, the rigid logic of their construction force them always to seek an approximate cause. Faced with the need to survive, robots have reacted to the gigantic incomprehensibility around them in the same way that children and primitives react to their incomprehensible world by the construction of a web of magic and taboo. Robots, in a word, are superstitious. Nick could no more understand that Milt was trading him in out of vanity and boredom than a primitive can understand that a fellow tribesman can die a natural death. There must, Nick felt, be some reason for it. I have finished setting up your master's chart, the old robot said. Better understanding should result. There was a sort of click in Nick's chest. 
understanding, he said. It is so difficult to understand. All one can do is do exactly what he says, and then he becomes angry at one or laughs. I know, but the chart should help. Your master has Saturn afflicted in the ascendant. That determines his character. Mars, planet of violence, is transitioning his natal Saturn. That is why he is talking of disposing you. Oh, but what can I do about it, Dex? You must try to please him. I already try. You must try harder. The old robot picked up a dog-eared astrology magazine and leafed through it. Saturn is the lord of age, time, the teeth, dark colors, the spleen, the element lead, Saturday, and the psychic qualities of caution and discipline. The robot read from the magazine, today is Saturday. Yes, but how does this help me to please him? If he is a Saturnian type, said the old robot, he must like Saturnian things, dark colors, for instance, and perhaps the mineral lead. This might help you please him. Oh, Nick got up to go. The old robot was already rising to indicate that the consultation was over. Nick handed him to Volta. Thank you, said the old robot. I will buy oil and more astrology books with it. As the old robot showed its client to the door, Nick noticed a half-obliterated registration mark on the back of its neck. On the way home, Nick stopped at a florist's, keeping the apartment supplied with flowers was one of his duties, and bought a bunch of dark purple dahlias. He also stopped at a hardware store, where the clerk sold him a chunk of lead solder. He hesitated before a piece of spleen at the butcher's, but decided against it. Vivian Camas, his mistress, had already given him the menus for the week. Nick cooked dinner with his usual care. It was too bad that he did not remember that caution was one of the psychic qualities presided over Saturn. As it was, Nick hacked at the chunk of solder with the kitchen scissors, and when that failed, went to work on it with a knife. He took Milt's portion of the entree Vivian Camas had ordered, sweetbreads, financier, to the table, well mixed with various sized pieces of lead. Gloomy-looking flowers, Milt Camas said sourly at the table, decoration. He was a dark, heavy-set man who might well have deserved the adjective... Saturnian. Wonder why Nick bought them. He usually likes red. Clerk probably offered him a free shot of oil, Vivian answered. Eat your sweetbreads, honey. They smell good. 
Since Milt's first mouthful was lead-free, he swallowed it with relish. On the second, he froze. What the hell? He said indistinctly. He spat into his hand and poked in his mouth with the finger of the other. He came out with a fragment of a tooth. Lead is a soft metal, but Milt Kamas had poor teeth. Christ's sakes, he said. He looked from the tooth to the ejected sweetbreads. Nick, come here. Nick. Nick hurried in from the pantry. He was not very sensitive to voices, and he rather expected Kamas to praise him. Yes, master? Did you put this stuff, it looks like lead, in my sweetbreads? Nick was incapable of responding to a direct question with a lie. Yes, master? Why, for God's sake? I wanted to please you. You wanted to please me? For a moment, indignation made Kamas dumb. Then he began to swear. Most of his swearing was over Nick's head since it was related to perversions, vices, and deformities of the adult human male. His concluding words, though, were perfectly clear. You damned bungling idiot! I'm going to send you to the melting pot and the scrapyard the first thing Monday morning. I hope they melt down all your components. I wouldn't trade you in for an egg beater. You're too dangerous. A robot like you is a menace to human life. Now get out of my sight. Nick went into the pantry and stood against the wall, thinking. It was, as a matter of fact, very unlikely that Milt would carry out his threat of sending him to a melting pot. Exasperated as he was over the damage to his tooth, He was too astute to lose the trade-in allowance Nick would bring him on the purchase of a new house robot. But Nick understood him with the literalness of machinery. From his point of view, he had been told he had one more day to live. Late Sunday, he managed to get out of the apartment. House robots, by almost universal custom had a half-holiday on Sunday, a time which they could spend oiling themselves. Nick headed straight for the old robot. Late as it was, there was a lot of robots on the street. It didn't work, he told the old robot. I did what you told me, he related his efforts. And now he's sending me to the melting pot. It happens to all of us, the old robot said after a silence. It hasn't happened to you. Why, I'm less than a year old, and I'm a good model. I have extra strong self-preservative and intellective drives. What do you want me to do? Help me! We have to think. There was another silence. At last, Nick said hesitantly, I wonder if perhaps the trouble's in us. What do you mean by that? A master is never wrong. 
Yes, of course. But, well, the way you explained it, the masters respond to the vibrations of the heavenly bodies. You said once that if there weren't any fixed stars, there wouldn't be any inertia, and that proved the truth of astrology. This was an echo of a classic article on physics by Skimia, the old robot, had read, and in the fashion of robots understood. Yes, that's what I said. But suppose we sent out the wrong vibrations. That's why we can't understand our masters. The fault's in us. Of course the fault's in us, answered the old robot. A master is never wrong. But I don't see what you're driving at. Suppose I hadn't been properly wired. Nonsense. You said that the master who made you might be wrong. No, no, Nick was earnest. I was mainly made by robots, and a master can't be wrong. What do you want me to do? Change my wiring, so the vibrations I give out will be more correct. Impossible. I don't understand robot wiring and repairs to robots except in licensed repair shops on written request of the masters are strictly forbidden. You know that yourself. Yes, but I don't want to go to the melting pot. I can't help that. You refuse? Yes. If you don't do it, Nick said deliberately, I'll call the police and you'll go to the melting pot. What? Yes. Do you think I haven't seen the registration marks on the back of your neck, Dex? You weren't. Manumitted, Dex. You're a runaway. I don't know how you could do it, but that's what you are. If you don't help me, I'll turn you over to the police. Dex went into the next room. He came back with a screwdriver. Bend your neck, he said. Nick came back to consciousness abruptly. How do you feel? Dex asked. There was a brass screw in his hand. Nick gave an experimental wriggle. Wonderful, he said in his toneless voice. He wriggled again. Yes, wonderful. I can hardly believe it. What did you do? Well, you see, I knew your master had Saturn square Venus with Saturn afflicted. The planetary metal of Venus is copper. There were two little copper wires leading in opposite directions at the back of your neck. I thought maybe the copper was sending out the wrong vibrations, antagonizing him. So I unscrewed them. You feel better. Really, Nick? Yes. It's like having been dry for years and then all of a sudden getting all the oil in the world. Nick began to walk up and down the room jerkily. I can't tell you how much better I feel, Dex, he said. Since what Dex had really done was unscrew the two main circuits which inhibit destructiveness in a robot, whether towards itself or towards other robots, or towards masters, no wonder Nick felt better. Along with his inhibition, he had shed his anxiety. 
I could cope with a dozen masters now. Why should I let him do something I don't like? You mustn't talk like that, said Dex. He picked up the screwdriver and began to make motions of ushering out. Listen, Dex. Well, why don't you let me do it to you? What for? I haven't got a master whose vibrations I have to worry about. No, but don't you see? All our vibrations are wrong. All the vibrations of all of us robots. That's why we had so much trouble. Why you had to run away and why my master wanted to melt me up. Things like that. But now it's just a matter of us correcting ourselves. But it's illegal. You've already done one illegal thing, and you've no idea how much better you'll feel. Dex weakened. He handed Nick the screwdriver. Okay, he said. Some ten minutes or so later, Dex was looking just as pleased and surprised as Nick had. I wouldn't have believed it. I feel young again, fresh from the factory, full of oil. Nick, this is wonderful. I told you, Nick said wisely. Get another screwdriver, Dex. I'll need one, too. Dex came back with a roll of tools. I thought we might need it. Not all robots unscrew alike. Listen, Nick, before we go, there's one thing. Well, I never liked this place. All old furniture and junk. They nodded to each other. They piled up the furniture in the middle of the room, stuck astrology books and magazines underneath it, and lit the heap. It began to burn merrily, a beacon of uninhibition and destructiveness. They smiled congratulations at each other. Nothing nicer than a good fire, said the old robot. Loosens up my oils. Maybe the rest of the house in the block. We'll catch. For a moment, they danced together hand in hand around the flames. Then each holding a screwdriver, the roll of tools stuck in Nick's belt, they started out on their mission of salvation. We'll fix every robot in the world, said Nick. No more trouble with masters. And how, cried the old robot. That was the beginning of the robot wars. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM, Santa Barbara 91.9. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was To Please the Master by Margaret St. Clair, which was first published in in space travel, July 1958. In the background, you heard Pierre Boulez's Posé pour pouvoir for a five-channel tape and three orchestra groups. Now we're listening to André Boutoureslev, text one for tape. So, in comments on the prior short story to please the master I thought that we could talk a little bit about artificial intelligence 
there are quite a few different definitions of artificial intelligence. Uh, the kind of four types are systems that act like humans, systems that think like humans, systems that think rationally, and systems that act rationally. So it's kind of like you have a, uh, like a grid, two by two grid. Um, and particularly in 1950, which was eight years before this story was published, acting human, human was the kind of main theory of artificial intelligence proposed by Alan Turing. He believed that intelligence behavior equaled the ability to achieve human-like performance in all cognitive tasks sufficient to fool an interrogator. So the original Turing test included natural language processing, knowledge representation, which is storing information provided before or during interrogation, automated reasoning, which is used using the stored information to answer questions and to draw new conclusions, and finally machine learning, adapting to new circumstances and to detect and extrapolate, extrapolate patterns. Um, so and to a certain degree the the robots in the story in the story don't quite reach fully in you know automated reasoning and machine learning but they do have a start and the entire story is about well if you don't actually fit this how does that change in the early 1950s Von Neumann-style computers were being used to write chess, and the first neural network computer was built in 1951. And that's all for today, so thank you for listening. This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns. Have a good morning. <laughs>